The shir this evening is L'Ilai Nishmas Penina Bas Devara. It should be an aliyah for the, for the neshama and for the whole family. And uh, this brings to an end a particularly long day of a particularly long week for me. I'm not saying that in a bad way, chas v'shalom. But uh, when Yaniv told me that Chazak would be interested in using you for the week, um, how many times can we ask you to speak? I said, as long as I keep standing. I think I'm going to sit down now. <laughs> I started the week Sunday night. I spoke for a Chazak group in Great Neck. And Tuesday night for a Chazak group in West Hempstead. And Wednesday night for a Chazak group in Manhattan. And this morning we did five schools in Queens. Now that's not really fair because one of the schools had two separate groups. So it was really like six talks. And then uh, he sent me off to speak in Brooklyn where I just came back from now. I actually came back uh, about a half an hour ago. I've been driving around the block looking for parking. And uh, finally I just parked in Brooklyn and came back because it was... <laughs> Just as easy. And this is the final uh, Chazak event of this wonderful, wonderful trip where Yaniv, who I can tell you, he's just so sincere and so inspired that he wants to help people so much that he doesn't even mind doing it at the expense of my very careful health that I've been guarding carefully. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah, I was one time going through a very difficult time and Ramesh Shapiro, he should... He should have a refuah shlema. You know, he said to me, um, he said to me, all right, you know, you're going through a difficult time, you know. I said, yeah, Hashem knows sen layayif koach. And he turned and he looked at me and he said, avorak mi she'ayayif mamash. Only if you're really exhausted. This evening, I should get a tremendous amount of strength from HaKadosh Baruch Hu because I am really exhausted. <laughs> so, uh, Baruch Hashem. And uh, this evening, I know there's part of the uh, beautiful project, Shabbos project that's going on. There's a lot of people out there right now baking challahs. You know, um, I'm thinking of Zomix. And uh, for this special Shabbos. <laughs> and also, they have big uh, challah bake-offs all around, people all getting together to be able to bake chalas, which, uh, you know, sometimes people with tremendous amount of work into it and frankly is not appreciated. Uh, this woman once told me she was crestfallen. She said she would work very hard every hour of Shabbos to bake chalas. And one week she couldn't. She said to her children, you know, I'm going to have to buy chalas. And they said, yay, can't we do that every week? <laughs> so, uh, you know, what can I tell you? The best of intentions. Um, the topic for this evening, for our final installment, is living with Amuna. Living with Amuna. Um, that's, uh, that could take on a few different meanings. Because in some circles, Amuna is a girl's name. So this might be a shear on Shalom Bayis. How to live with Amuna. <laughs> um, my wife was uh, in childbirth. Um, I was with her in all of the 11 births. I got through most of them without medication. And uh, I would just keep breathing. But uh, 
there was one that was very strange. She was in the middle of transition, you know, and, um, and the contraction stopped, and she said, I have to tell you a joke. And me and the midlife look at each other because she's, like, pushing already, like, you know, the birth. She says, this woman was in childbirth, and she started screaming, Geula, Geula. And everyone thought, wow, what a religious woman, you know, all this pain she's going through. And all she wants is a geula. And she's screaming, geula, geula. And finally the midwife walks in and goes, geula, I was calling you for half an hour. Where were you? <laughs> so yeah, then she started having the final pushing and the baby was born. But anyway, so uh, um, uh, living with Amuna, so let, let's understand what this means. Amuna is an amazing thing. And there are levels to Amuna, and I want to try to address it this evening, because when we talk about Amuna, yeah, Moshe Rabbeinu, who was a Navi like no one else, who was able to talk to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Peh where you were able to have, so to speak, a conversation. Nevi'im didn't have this. Nevi'im got an image and they had to put those images into words, and that's why there's a rule that if two Nevi'im say the same thing, you know that they're false. Because every Navi gets the picture, and he has to figure out how to express it. Uh, this is according to one of the Mepharshim, why it's called the Kedat Yitzchak, or it's called the, the test of Yitzchak. Because really it was the test of Avraham. Avraham had to sacrifice his son. But Yitzchak had to hope that Avraham got it right. Avraham got a, it, you know, you read the Chumash, Hashem comes, you know, you know, take your son up, you know. He didn't get any words, he got a picture. And he's taking Yitzchak up. And he says, God wants me to shecht you and bring you as a Corbin. He says, you sure did? You know, because if you interpreted this wrong, like, you know, I'm, I'm the only Jewish kid in the whole world, you know? And Avram was like, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, take you up the mountain and kill you. Okay, you sure? Yeah. By the way, that's not as easy as it sounds, you know? My, my son, who's now in his 30s, we were driving once, and he said, where are we going? I said, you know, it's the darndest thing. Kodesh Baruch came to me yesterday. <laughs> he says to me, Abba, don't joke. I said, no, I get the knife in the back. You know, you get... <laughs> it's not as easy as it sounds. <laughs> but he, you get an image. Moshe Rabbeinu got words. Hashem spoke to him in words. And after he did the chait, where he hit the rock, Hashem says to him, Lama lohe emantim bi, why didn't you believe in me? What do you mean believe in me? Avraham didn't believe, I mean, Moshe didn't believe in Hashem, and Hashem is talking to him, telling him, you don't have emuna. Well, he didn't believe in God. You have to understand, when you talk about something like emuna, you have to know what you're talking about. It's a very, very difficult concept. You have to really, really work at it, you know. I ran NCSY in Long Island for nine years, and it was not unusual that I would meet a teenager, 14, 15 years old. And he'd say to me, I'm an atheist. An atheist. I know that there is no God. You understand? I know that. Uh, so I'd say, that's interesting. Um, Do you ever study uh, Greek philosophy? 
Plato and Aristotle? No. Medieval philosophy? Thomas Aquinas, you know? Uh, you know, uh, utopia, you know, any, any, no. Modern philosophy? Hegel, Heidegger, Nietzsche? No. Lahavdi, did we say Jewish philosophy? The Rambam, Yehuda Levi? No. Did you ever study Talmud? No. Did you ever read the Bible? What do you mean, the whole thing? <laughs> One guy said to me, I got the monarch notes on the Old Testament. <laughs> you know what I'm I said, then you'll forgive me. You're not an atheist. You're an idiot. You know? <laughs> Where'd you develop your theology? On the school bus one day, looking out the window? Is there a God? Mm, nope. In fact, I'm positive. I said, you're not the first person to ask the question. There is some evidence out there. Why don't you look at the evidence and try to examine it? That person doesn't have Muna issues. You understand? They've never looked at it. They've never examined it. You know? And unfortunately, a lot of people, you know, they go into a panic. Oh no, you know, I have a mashkir, call me up from yeshiva, I have a bocha, he has amuna issues. I said, really? He says, yeah, he, he, uh, he doesn't know if there's a neighbor, he doesn't know if he gave the Torah. I said, let me ask you a question. Uh, this kid doesn't get up in the morning? Yes. Uh, he's not successful in his learning? Yes. He hangs out at night? Yes, I said, he has problems, but they're not philosophical. Tell me he gets up in the morning, he learns a whole day, and then you find him at night in the base medrash with a copy of Spinoza's Ethics. You know what I mean? That's a person with a moon of problems. This is a person who knows that in our community, all you have to do is say, you know, um, I don't believe in God. And everyone goes, whoa, the moon of issues. I was speaking once to a group of Beis Yaakov teachers, and they said, how would you deal with this issue? says, uh, it was a ninth grade class, and one of the rabbis was teaching a class there, and a girl asked a question, whatever the question was. And he said, Kaifrim? We have Kaifrim here? I'm not Mechuyev to teach Kaifrim? And he walks out the door, Kaifrim! He says, what would you think of that? I said, that's pretty good if a ninth grader can be a Kaifer. You know what I mean? You know how much you have to know to be a Kaifer? <laughs> you know... Because a person asks a question, and a lot of people get nervous at questions. It was in Yerushalayim, eighth grader, asked a question. Okay, it was, you like the question, I don't like the question, no? They were learning about how Moshe Rabbeinu killed the Egyptian by saying the Shemim Afarish, and he killed him. So this girl asked, how could Moshe Rabbeinu kill somebody? He says, well, he was a Russia, and he looked with Rosh HaKodesh, you know? But he says, but still killing, isn't killing somebody a bad thing? You know? I mean, okay, the guy was a rush, but somebody else could have done it. Isn't it a bad thing to kill somebody? So the teacher said, girls, close your chumashim. We cannot continue to learn because of the ruach hatuma in the room from that question. Everyone take out your tehillim. I'm going to say tehillim for the rest of the class. Now, luckily, this girl's father had his head screwed on straight, and they came home and they all laughed about it, you know. But it's the kind of thing that can really shake somebody up. You know, so when we talk about Amuna, we're not talking about Amuna where, you know, where a person says, oh, I don't believe because I just don't know. Neither are we talking about a level of Amuna that is based on nothing. 
There are people who say they have a Muna, but they don't have a Muna, right? They just were told that there's a God and they accept it without thinking about it. So people say, isn't that a Muna Pshuta? No. I'll tell you what a Muna Pshuta is. I once heard uh, Mati Berger give a beautiful example of what's called the Muna Pshuta. Yeah? How do you know that you exist? Maybe you don't exist. You know? Maybe you're a figment of somebody else's imagination. Right? And you're just a bit player in somebody else's dream. Uh, Tom Stoppard did a play called Rosencrantz and Gildestern are dead. Rosencrantz and Gildestern were two minor characters in Hamlet, and the joke was we wrote Hamlet over from their perspective. They're obviously just a couple of bit players. They have nothing to do with it. And to make them ki'ilu, they had you know, any kind of, of importance. That's what made the whole thing funny, right? Rosencrantz and Gildestern were just two minor characters in Hamlet. <laughs> So maybe you're just a minor player in somebody else's dream or in somebody else's imagination. How do you know you actually exist? This is a very scary concept, by the way. Don't think about it too much. You know what I mean? So there is a philosophical proof for this. The French philosopher Descartes said the following, I think, therefore I am. Right? How do I know I exist? I know that I'm having thoughts. And whoever it is that has these thoughts exists. Yeah? That is a good philosophical argument. If you wake up in the morning and you say, oh my gosh, I don't know if I want to get out of bed. Wait a second. Maybe I don't exist. Then I don't have to get up. Oh no, taka taka, I think therefore I am. Oh, that's right, that's right. Yeah. If you need that to get out of bed in the morning, there's something seriously wrong with you. How do you know you exist I know I exist because I know I exist. That's the bottom line. I'm sure of my own existence. You can play a game with me. When I used to teach in Or Sameach, you know, Rabbi Dr. David Gottlieb was uh, on staff there, you know, and he was the head of the philosophy department at John Hopkins. And I used to threaten the guys. I said, if you fool around, he's going to prove you don't exist. You know what I mean? And then you won't know what to do with yourself. You know what I mean? But even if you prove to me I don't exist, I know I still exist. You know? Philosophical game. If I need that, what's a munapshuta? A munapshuta is as much as I know my own existence, that's how I know that a Kurdish Baruch Hu exists. The Arizal. Um, I don't know exactly the chronology, but I believe he preceded Descartes. And he said, that's the way we know that a Kurdish Baruch Hu exists, because we know that we exist, and it's an extension of our own existence. And that's why HaKadosh Baruch Hu introduces himself to the world with the word Anochi, I am. Just as you know you exist, you know I exist. So if you know HaKadosh Baruch Hu exists, like you know you exist, then there's not a problem. But there are people who don't know that HaKadosh Baruch Hu exists. They were told. Or as more than one from person said to me, I know God exists, I just don't believe it. Intellectually, I know that it's true. I can't prove it intellectually. I just always heard that it was true. I was once invited to speak at a seminary on the topic of how to answer basic questions in Judaism. And one girl said, you shouldn't answer questions because that will take away from your emunah pshuta. 
I said, you're defining a munapshuta as believing in something without any logic or sense? She said, yes. I said, then you will never have the level of amuna of a Mormon. If you can believe in Mormonism, you have a level of amuna that is astounding. I had studied this on my own, but one time I was staying in a Marriott, and the Marriott, they actually put in a Book of the Mormons, and I had to read some of it just to see if it was true. So I'll give you a little background to it. Um, Joseph Smith, who had been convicted of fraud for selling phony medical cures on another of occasions, said that Yoshka came to him. After Yoshka died and was resurrected, he went to upstate New York where he buried a number of golden plates. And Joseph Smith was led to this mountain. I forgot if it was Utica or Ithaca, you know, but it was one of these places in upstate New York. And he dug up the golden plates. And in the Book of the Mormons, a number of family members testify that they felt the plates under a cloth. They weren't allowed to see them. But they felt the plates, so they knew it was real. And Joseph Smith transcribed what was written on the golden plate that became the Book of the Mormons. And then the angel took the plates away, which is really too bad, because you could imagine that would have been a tremendous piece of evidence. But the angels took it away. And Joseph Smith began to teach this Book of the Mormons. Uh, he was set upon by an angry crowd where he was killed. And his follower, Brigham Young, led his followers to the Pacific Ocean. When they arrived there, they gave tremendous thanks to the Lord for bringing them to the Pacific Ocean, which, through poor planning, was the Great Salt Lake in Utah. <laughs> and that's where they set up camp. And Brigham Young led the people, and he allowed polygamy because there were a lot more women who evidently was attracted to this. I never saw Joseph Smith or Brigham Young, but it could be that was an explanation. You know what I mean? That they just were really, you know, spiritually looking. And uh, women who are more spiritual able to sense this. But in any event, you could have more than one wife. And they set up in Utah. Now, one of the amazing tenets of Mormonism is that there is an ongoing revelation. And the head of the, Muslim, of the Mormon church is able to constantly get insight from God. So when Utah wanted to become a state, the United States said you can't join because you allow polygamy. And then... And I have to say, it's the timing that makes this particularly miraculous. And then God came to bring him young and told him to outlaw polygamy. Now, a cynical person might think that he just made that up. But if you had real Amunapshuta, then you understand that it was just at that moment that he got that vision, and boy, was that lucky. <laughs> and that continued for many years, because in Brigham Young University, they didn't allow in black students and they were going to be expelled from the NCAA, and the head of the Mormon church had a vision from God that you can now let in black students. And again, it was the timing that made that truly miraculous. Now, if you can believe that, being a Jew is nothing. You understand? So if, if we define Amunapshuta as how ignorant you can be from the facts, then Judaism is just not much of a qualification. Yeah? Judaism has always been a religion of study. 
it is an amazing concept. Until the Reformation, it was punishable by death for a Christian to read the New Testament. I'm not talking about the Old Testament, the New Testament. Um, uh, Henry VI's last wife, I think was Catherine Howard, he was going to put her to death because he found out she was reading the Bible. You understand, they don't want you reading the Bible. That's for the priest to do, and he'll let you know what's in there. Don't worry about it. You know, they don't want you studying that. In Judaism, what do we say? Talmud, Torah, We want you to ask questions, examine, and search. <coughs> when a child is young, what do we tell him? Learn the Manish Tanah. Learn how to ask questions. Examine and search. I was on a Jerusalem Fellowships tour and there was a girl who was converting to Judaism. She had been a born-again Christian. But she had a problem. She had a lot of questions. And she kept asking questions. Until finally the minister said to her, Sister, the Lord wants you to cut off your head and come to him with your heart. She said, at that point I decided to look into Judaism. <laughs> and I found such a different experience. When you ask a rabbi a question, he says, no, 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 ask better. Because you could also ask like this and like this and like this. She's like, right, right, I didn't want to know all of that. And he says, that's good according to the Rambam, but what do you do with the Ravid? He says, like this and like this and like this. I know, oh, what are you going to do with the, oh, he's doing that the kids of Mishnah's Kasha. What do you do like this and like that? She's like, okay, really, I don't care that much. You know what I mean? We give much more information. We tell people to ask and to study and to seek and not just to accept. Um, Usher Wade, when he was thinking of converting, he told the story. He said that he had questions. And he went to one of his higher-ups in the church and he said, I used to have those questions. He says, what did you do? He said, I prayed until they went away. Come with me. And I start praying. See, questions gone? He says, yeah. He says, then I went to speak to a rabbi. And when you ask a rabbi a question, he almost never goes, Shiamalai, Svimavakin. No, it's a great question. We look at questions. We get excited by questions. You know? The Truman Sedeshin, one of the last of the A.A. Rishonim, he wrote a whole safe of Shalos and Chuvis. They weren't real questions. He made up the questions because he wanted to give the answers. You know what I mean? So he made up questions. You know? Uh, today it wouldn't be such a trick. They would just give, the, uh, they would give all the answers and the questions to Hillary. But, but back then... <laughs> I'm just starting. Anyway, so... But the... Uh, uh, you know, the, the idea of being able to ask a question. And why? Because. And how do we know? And do we see? And what do we see from this? We see from that. <coughs> Somebody asked a rabbi once, why do you Jews answer every question with a question? He said, why not? <laughs> but it's the kind of thing that we get trained to ask questions. That the way we learn is through asking questions. The Gemara is all asking questions. You examine. The more you ask a question, the, the, the easier it is to arrive at the truth. That's a unique Jewish experience. We're not supposed to just believe. We're not supposed to cut off our head. We're supposed to ask and examine. And I have to tell you that if you meet somebody who tells you just believe and don't ask, my advice is seek out somebody else. And if they give you an answer that you don't like, ask somebody else. It's got to make sense. It's got to fit in. 
as Rabbi Noach Weinberg from Eishat Torah said, we Jews have been accused of everything over the past few thousand years. We, we are, worship the devil, we kill children for their blood, you know, we desecrate the host. You know, they take the little cookie they use and, you know, and, and torture it, you know. We've been accused of t- cookie torture. We, we call it communism, we've been called capitalism, we've been called everything. The only thing no one's ever called us was stupid. And if we've been around for so long, it's not because we just tell people, have faith. It's got to make sense. And there's a tremendous amount of empathy. So, when we talk about Amuna, the first level of Amuna is, I have to know. I have to know. Is this right or wrong? I mentioned earlier, timing is everything. We were going, uh, our first daughter was in uh, a basic of high school in show. And the day of parent-teacher's meeting, she comes home and says, I had a fight with the Yahadus teacher. Timing is everything. So we're like, that's great. You know, so now they're going to throw her out. Then what are we going to do with her? You know what I mean? And now the rest of the family can't go to school because one kid gets thrown out. Everybody's out. So we went in there, and uh, the teacher said, let me tell you what happened. And we said, no, no, I'm sure she's wrong. She'll write you a letter of apology. She says, no, no, let me tell you what happened. No, I'm sure the motor is correct. You know, whatever it is, we'll punish her. We'll beat her. You know, just please, you know. <laughs> Let me tell you the story. I was like, okay. So we were learning about Hanukkah. Which is the difference between the Jews and the Greeks is that, you know, the Greeks have to have everything proven to them. The Greeks, it's intellectual. Everything has to make sense. We just believe. Now, unfortunately, she had sat through too many of my classes. This is a problem with my kids. One time we were on an LL flight when she was a teenager. And this you know, Yeshiva Bacha asked if he, he would change seats with her. He was sitting next to these two women. You know, so my daughter agreed to change seats. These two women were Christian missionaries. And they decided to spend the flight trying to convert my daughter. I felt so bad for them. You know? She was bringing them proofs. She was bringing my Mekoma. She invited them over for Shabbos. You know, I mean, forget about it, you know? Anyway, so my daughter says to the Yadu's teacher, goes, what, we're just naive? We just believe what anybody says? So he says, uh, well, it, it says we stood at Har Sinai and we said, Nasim and Nishma. So my daughter said, that wasn't in a vacuum. We saw the Yesimakos. We saw Kriyas Yamsuf. We saw the Munfor. We heard a Kosh Baruch Hu speak. There was something to base it on. We're not just naive people. And to this teacher's tremendous credit, she said, you're right. I obviously misunderstood this. You know, as unfortunately many people do. We confuse ignorance with amuna. That's not what amuna is. Amuna takes a tremendous amount of understanding and depth and intellectual examination. And Avram Avinu, who we read about in this week's parsha, says the Rambam had a yeshiva in Choran with thousands and tens of thousands of students. How did he get there? Everybody had a little getchka. Everybody had a god. They could show you their god. He had no god. A big, all-powerful, invisible god. Did this god ever speak to you? No. How do you know he exists? Pure logic. Avram Avinu figured it out on his own. You all know the story how he went and he smashed all the idols, right? It doesn't mean he took a hammer and smashed all the idols. It means every idol represented a philosophy. And he followed that entire road down until he realized it was no good, and then he smashed it. Uh, for you Harry Potter readers, he put a fiery X on it. Whatever works for you, you know? And he went to the next one, and he went to the next one. 
And by process of elimination, he arrived at the truth through pure intellectual examination. You know how Yashka knew he was right? He was the son of God. You know how uh, Muhammad knew he was right? God came to him in a vision. You know how Paul knew he was right? God came to him in a vision. You know how Avram knew he was right? He proved it to you intellectually. He showed you that it had to be true. That's how Avram arrived at Amuna. He arrived through logic and proof. It has to make sense. And the first part of Amuna is not that I just believe because people believe. Yeah? We call that Anoshimi Lemudai. We call that habit. We call that rote. Robert Frost, in his famous poem, Mending Wall, tells the story about two neighbors who had to fix their wall. And Robert Frost says, why do we need the wall? My apples will not go over and eat your peaches. And he says, but his neighbor said what he heard from his father. Fences make good neighbors. And he liked the way it sounded so much that he said it again as if it was his own idea. Fences make good neighbors. What an unbelievable thing. People repeat things and they think that it's the... I didn't hear it in this election, but in other elections, you hear people interview people on the street and they say, why are you voting for this person? And they repeat the slogan. You know? Uh, Whatever the slogan happens to be. Then why are you voting for Trump? I want to make America great again. Why are you voting for Hillary? Because I'm hoping I'll get a few bucks out of it too. You know what I'm saying? You know, whatever the case is. I can say whatever I want. Anyway... He does. (laughs) Anyway, so uh, he's going to be the only president when he gets up to speak that's going to be like a five-second delay, you know, so they can, you know, believe it out. (laughs) But, um, you know, the, uh, the people just repeat what they hear. But they like it so much that they thought it was their own. It's not enough. Baruch Atah Hashem Elokeinu Velokeavoseinu. He's my God and he's my father's God. But first he's got to be my God. And I have to look into this and understand it for myself and I can't just accept that I always heard it. And this is a big, big problem today. Because you can check this out for yourself. Most people do what most people do. Because that's what most people do. And you can see if I'm right. And you ask most people why they do something, they do it because that's what most people do. I have students from the finest yeshivas and seminaries who come to my house for Shabbos meal, and I ask them, how did you choose this place? And they say, it's where my friends went. My friends are going there, so that's where I go. Never once did a person say to me, because I decided this would be the best place for my personal Torah growth. Never once did I hear that this is an unbelievable Tamil and I can really learn from him. Everyone does what everyone does because that's what everyone does. And to have to stop and think about it? Is that what I really believe? Is that what I want to do? Rav Rudiman was telling a story during World War I. He managed to save up. There was no money. He managed to save up his pennies and buy himself a new pair of tzitzis. I don't know if his old pair was puzzle. I don't know. This is the story I heard. And Rav Rudiman showed the Alto Slabatka, look, Rebbe, I bought a new pair of tzitzis. And he looked at it and said, maybe you should have given the money to Tzedakah. And as he told over the story, he sees everybody's nodding. Sure, the Tzedakah is more important. He says, no, no, you don't understand. 
If I would have said to him, look, Rebbe, I saved up all this money, I gave it to Tzedakah, he would have said to me, maybe you should have bought a pair of tzitzis. How do you know that was the best thing to do? Did you do what you, was the best thing? Or you, did you do what you felt was emotionally moving to you? Sometimes when I would give a Gemara and I'd give an answer, a guy says, I don't like that. I said, do you have a kasha on it? Or do you find it emotionally unfulfilling? I find it emotionally unfulfilling. I said, then go see a therapist. It's not my problem. I'm not here to make you happy. <laughs> if you tell me I have an intellectual problem with it, we could discuss it. But I'm not here to entertain you. I don't like that answer. Got another one? You know? If you tell me there's a problem with it, then I'll examine the problem with it. But otherwise... Then at the end of the day, this was something Rav Nayak always used to say, says, be a judge and not a lawyer. A lawyer is there to argue. You can argue anything. The question is not, can you argue? The question is, does it make sense? Yeah? There's a guy I knew came to learn in Israel, came to Asia Torah, to study the proofs of God, uh, proofs of Torah Misenai. He wasn't sure whether or not God had given the Torah on Har Sinai. He was going to study the proofs. Okay. He was there for six months. And I see him. I said, no. How's it going? Yeah, I'm not sure. I said, you're not sure? What are you not sure about? You know? I don't know if I'm convinced. I said, wait a second. You heard six months worth of arguments. You have a question on the arguments? Do you have a problem with the arguments? Are the arguments convincing? I don't know. I said, there's no such a thing. The jury can't listen to the evidence after, you know, three months of a trial and then get up and say, I don't know. Maybe he did it, maybe he didn't. I, I, I. Well, is there anything else you want to know about the evidence? No, I just... An old Jewish joke about these 12 Jews who would choose for a jury. And after deliberating, they get up and say, we decided we don't want to get involved. <laughs> if you have a problem with the evidence, ask the question. Yeah? So when he was all done, I said, look, I'll tell you why you're not convinced. Because this was never your question. Nobody really cares if Hashem gave the Torah and Harsina. You think anybody lies awake at night, tossing and turning, did it happen, did it not happen? No. He says, your problem is that you're not happy. He says to me, you're right, I'm not happy. I said, that's what you should be addressing. You mean I just wasted six months of my life? I said, yes. He says, why didn't you tell me that at the beginning? I said, because you went to listen to me. So you were so sure you had a philosophical question. Amuna means I have to be intellectually honest and examine the evidence and see what's there. Rebbe Chaim, Vasiman writes, the mitzvah, one of the mitzvahs, the Shev Mitzvah in Noach, is to accept God. Which means, he says, that a 13-year-old non-Jewish student can figure out intellectually that God exists. He has the evidence, he has the ability, and he can figure it out intellectually. That's the ability that we have. So that part of Amunah is relatively easy. You sit down, you look at the evidence, you read it through, and, and you see whether or not it's true or not. Yeah? Not everybody will arrive at that conclusion. Rav Desla asks, the Greeks were so intellectual, how could they not figure out that there was a God? The Rambam says that Aristotle was on the level that he could have had Navua. How could he not figure out that there was a God? 
He says, because if you don't believe in God, you have your whole life ahead of you. It says a judge who accepts a bribe can no longer decide a case. And the Gemara Gesuva says about this guy who was judging a case for his sharecropper. His sharecropper used to come every Friday and bring him a basket of fruit. That was the deal. And he kept everything else. So the courts meet on Monday and Thursday. So the sharecropper has to schlep into town for the court case. So he says, Rabbi, by the way, I brought you your basket of fruit. He says, Oive, I have to disqualify myself from the case. He says, why? He says, I've just accepted a bribe. He says, what do you mean a bribe? It's your fruit. He says, I know, but I got it a day early. He says, you got it a day early because it was convenient for me. Otherwise, I'd have to schlep in for another day. So it doesn't make a difference. I excuse myself from the case. And he sat outside the window and listened to the case, and he found as he was hearing the arguments, he kept thinking to himself, oh, the sharecropper should say this, he should say that, he should say this. And he caught himself and he says, I got my own fruit a day early, and the guy wasn't trying to bribe me. And look how it colored my, my understanding. Imagine a person who takes a real bribe, Says Rav Desla, is there any greater bribe than saying, if you don't believe in God, you can do anything that you want? Shia Cohen tells the story that he was on a plane, and this woman says to him, you're a Jew. He says, uh, yes I am, what gave it away? Yeah. Oh, the Pope wears a white one. Yeah. <laughs> she says, you know the Jews are the chosen people. It says so in the Bible. He said, that's right. It says, God gave the Bible to the Jews on Mount Sinai. He said, that's right. Said, How come every time I meet a Jew, they don't believe that? All of us Christians believe it. And he said, I'll tell you why. If you believe it, you can still eat ham. You can eat shrimp. You can do whatever you want on Saturday. You understand? It doesn't limit you. If we believe it, it comes with a whole set of commandments. And I'm not sure if I'm convinced that's the bribe. But if a person can be intellectually honest and examine it, says Rebbe Chanan Vasavin, a 13-year-old non-Jewish boy could come to the same conclusion. Yeah? So they tell a story where Roshach came to the Brisker Rev. And he says, I don't understand. Amuna? Any intelligent person can figure out there's a God and he gave the Torah. What's the big deal of Amuna? And the Briskarov says, you're right. Amuna starts when it doesn't make any sense. And things don't always make sense. I have a friend, a neighbor, Rabbi Shadmi, and uh, he was chavrusas with Rabbi Baruch Orbach, Rabbi Shlomo Zalman's son. And his daughter got married, and in the week of Sheva Brachas, he was walking through a crosswalk, and an egged bus killed him. And all of Roshul Mazalman, Roshul Mazalman was no longer alive, but all of his children were sitting Shiva. And the Rashiva of Eitz Chaim comes in to pay a Shiva call. Old man, walking with a cane. And all the brothers who just lost a brother so tragically are wondering, what is he going to say? And he sat there quietly for a few minutes. And then he said, No! About 6,000 yards, the Abish to fear the Welt. And he left. 
And they were all sitting there shaking their head. What does that mean? About 6,000 years, God runs the world. Yeah? In case you haven't figured it out by now, Yiddish is just English with a bad accent. <laughs> About 6,000 years, the Abishter feared the Welt. Yeah? It's not that hard. In case you don't know Yiddish, just talk English with an accent. You're probably right half of the time, you know? Du willst a glass of milk? Yeah, ich willst a glass of milk. For was die willst a glass of milk? Ich weiß, for was willst a glass of milk? Yeah? It's really not that hard, you know? Um, I don't speak Yiddish. It was my parents' secret language. They, they would always speak language Yiddish when they didn't want me to know what was going on. And they'd be like, so we went to day school, we learned Hebrew, that became our secret language. We talked about the behind back. What did you say? Nothing did. You know. You know, so you listen for clues. My oldest brother was the Greisa, my youngest brother was the Kleina, and I was the Andara. You know? So you just listen for phrases like, uh, given the Kindle the Geld, I'd say, the Andara is do. <laughs> Not much Yiddish I could figure out, you know what I mean? You know? We got a, I, I, someone picked me up at the airport and the guy was talking to me the whole time in Yiddish, you know, and, uh, you know, I'm talking back, you know, and we get to the, to the house. My son says to me, I didn't know you speak Yiddish. I said, I don't. He says, and what was he saying? I said, I have no idea. <laughs> I said, you just keep going, yeah, yeah, you know. And if you think he said something good, you say, as a shen if you think it was bad, you say, ah, matzif. And that was it. I have no idea what he was saying, you know what I mean, you know. But uh, about 6,000 years, God runs the world. So they're all sitting there thinking, what, what is he trying to say, you know? And one brother said, I'll tell you what he's saying. This is a big kasha. But it's not the first kasha in 6,000 years. If you want to ask kashas, there have been stronger kashas than this. But God runs the world. This is such an important idea. I was going through a particularly difficult time. I always go through difficult times, but this was a particularly difficult time. I have a Hasidic friend, and he could see it on my face that I was going through a particularly difficult time, and he tells me a story. Rabbi Levi Yitzhak Pradichev was walking with his Hasidim, and he stopped, and he said, if I was a Kodesh Baruch Hu, you know what I would do? They said, what? He said, just what he's doing now. Why, you think I'm smarter than him? And bam, it hit me. Yeah, I think I'm smarter than him. That's why. And I say, listen, you're very impressive, creating the entire world from nothing. You're all powerful, but you dropped the ball, big guy. And if you put me in charge, I'll fix this up right away. There's a number of things I would like to repair. Death penalty for double parking. I have a whole bunch of things that I would institute, you know? But, uh, but at the end of the day, a Kurdish Baruch who got this job because he has the qualifications for it, and I don't. Even if there are things I don't understand, the Abish to fear the Welt. <coughs> and whenever something would go wrong, I would say to myself, God knows what he's doing. You know, I wouldn't want to be God. I don't like the hours. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> Baruch has to take care of everything. And I think I know. I'm, I'm in good company. Moshe Rabbeinu would ask a Kurdish Baruch, what are you doing? What happened here? What happened there? And he says, you don't understand. Can you, can you on some level grasp that there are details that are missing from you because you don't know everything? We see small things and we think we understand it. A, um, 
I had a guy in my class who was a trained entomologist. Not the study of language, the study of bugs. He was a bug guy, yeah? And he talked about how there are these species that are sometimes brought in that become invasive, and we try to fix it, and it only gets worse. So I'll give you an example. In Australia, there were only marsupials. There weren't any mammals. There was one mammal, but I think it was like a bat, you know? There were certainly no ungulates. So when the English settlers came over, they brought with them <coughs> sheep and cows. But the parasites that ate those, uh, that type of manure didn't exist in Australia. So entire fields were covered with sheep and cow manure to the point that you couldn't plant them. So they started a national project, he told me, called the African Dung Beetle uh, Project, wherein they brought across dung beetles from Africa and they introduced them into Australia and they were able to eat all of the dung and all was right with the world. But it doesn't always work that way. So they also brought over rabbits. And rabbits had no natural predators. And they breed like rabbits. Hence the expression. And the countryside was being devastated by rabbits. So what did they do? They brought across stoats, which was a natural enemy of the rabbit. But it was hard for them to catch rabbits. So they started killing all of the other small animals that were native to Australia. So they brought over something else to eat the stoats. Perhaps she'll die. Perhaps she'll die. You understand? You, you don't understand the consequences of an action. You do something and you don't know where it's going to go. I know there's no shame in being poor. But it's no great honor either. What would be so terrible if I had a small fortune, you know? It could be terrible. You understand? Not everybody can handle it. They've done studies on people who won the lottery, you know, and it destroyed their lives. A person who didn't have that kind of money suddenly gets this enormous amount of money. They don't know what to do with it. It destroys people. Sometimes for societal reasons. There was this Cheder uh, Rebbe in uh, Yerushalayim, won the lottery. His life was over. Everybody was coming over and demanding money, not asking. You know, in Israel, they don't ask. You know what I mean? Um, I do a trip to Europe every year. We're going to Italy this year. We went to Greece, we went to Spain. And somebody pointed out, if you watch the beggars in, um, in these countries, they put down a cloth they bend down on their knees and lean forward with their hands extended. And that's how they beg. So Rabbi Barron, who is the, uh, the history and, uh, you know, he, gives all the, he does all the hard work. I just do my regular shiram. You know? So uh, he said to me, why do they do that? I said, your problem is you're a Jew. And you think that staka and chesed is a given. It's not. It doesn't exist in the rest of the world. Not the way it does among Jews. I was with my son in Disneyland. 
and we got separated. And my son's an Israeli. He went over to a stranger and said, can I borrow your phone to call my father? I'm like, no. My son was like, really? He went to a bunch of other people. Nobody would lend him their phone. He finally went into a store. They said, tell me your father's number and I'll call him. You know? He was shocked. In Israel, people come to you all the time. About your phone. You, know? you don't even think twice about it. So when a person in, in Israel comes over and asks you for money, says, you know, it's coming to me. You're a Jew. I happen to be an Ani. I'm making it lucky to you. I'm coming right to you. You understand? You don't have to go looking for me. I make house calls. <laughs> Every place else, I should give you money. I should give you tzedakah. You know, so if I make myself so, so lowly, so poor, so miserable, then maybe you'll give me something, you know? But not because I deserve it, not because it's coming to me, not because I should expect it from you. Right? <coughs> so, um, um, why did I bring in this story? I was talking about Israel. This is a great thing about ADD. You know, any shit becomes a group participation event. Um, I was talking about yeah, trips. trips. <laughs> no, that's why I brought in the story about the guy who was begging. But I brought in the guy who was begging for a different reason. Anyone's taking notes? Yeah. The lottery. Hashem. So here, a guy wins the lottery, and. You know, in Israel, they don't come and ask you for money. They demand it. You know, so the cheder, where his kids were going, saying, if you don't give us the mice money, we're throwing your kids out. People were knocking on his door all hours of the day and night, and whatever he gave them, it's like, not enough. He eventually had to move to America, you know. A person, a person you know, can win the lottery, a person can get tremendous wealth, and it might not be good for them. I personally have been spending a lifetime perfecting myself. I think I'm finally ready. <laughs> My son says I'll never win. When the Powerball was $640 million, I bought a ticket. And he says to me, Abby, you'll never win. I said, why? He goes, what would you do with the money? Like you buy houses, you buy apartments for everybody. You buy cars for everybody. You know, now what? What are you going to do? You go on a vacation, take everybody to a hotel. Okay, now what? $640 million, what would you do with it? I don't know, I'll think of something. <laughs> Give me a little time. <laughs> you know, I'll fix up my apartment. How about that? <laughs> he says, You see, you won't even buy yourself a new one. You'll fix up your apartment. I was like, That's as big as you can imagine, you know? <coughs> but we think, you know, a Kurdish bar, who dropped the ball, he doesn't know what he's doing. Now, you see, you see things come together. Boaz was 400 years old. And Rus was a Moabis. And nobody wanted to marry her because everyone knew you're not supposed to marry from Moab. And he said, I have a Masorah. Moabi Valel Moabis. It only applies to the men and not to the women. And I'll marry her. He was the God of Adore. He married her. The next day he died. Everyone said, whoops. I guess he got it wrong. It was just the opposite. Akaros Baruch Hu kept him alive for 400 years so that he'll give birth to David and Melech and Mashiach. But you don't know because you're looking at part of the information. You don't have all the information. You don't have the whole story. One of my daughters was having trouble getting into uh, high school. 
and all kinds of terrible things took place for no good reason, and, and things were really bad. And she wasn't sure where she was going to go, what was going to happen. And she said to me, Abba, what does HaKadosh Baruch Hu want from me? And I said, when it's all over, I'll tell you. <laughs> but I don't know yet. When it was all over, I was able to see the Hashkoch. It was so clear. I don't know how I missed it. And everything was so clear. She ended up getting into a better high school than the one she wanted to get to, you know. And she only got in because the, princi- the, the assistant principal and, the, and the, her teacher and the Israel play, you know, the high school placement people all went down together to demand that they take my daughter and all this. She said, but why couldn't I just get on my own? I said, do you know what a covet it was for you that all these people went down and stood up for you? How many people get that kind of attention? You know, it was unbelievable. She was very successful, you know, but she went through a very difficult time. And she asked me when it was happening. Why is this happening? I can't tell you why it's happening. That's not me, by the way. The Gemara says, Moshe Rabbeinu says to Kodesh Baruch I want to see you. He says, well, you can't see my front, you'll see my back. Oh, that's much more helpful. Kodesh Baruch Hu doesn't have a front, he has a back. And Kodesh Baruch Hu passes by and he shows him his back. Says the Gemara in Brachos, he showed him the knot of his tefillin. God has a very, very big pair of tefillin, and then he showed him the knot in the back. What does that mean? He said, God, I want to understand you. I want to know why things are happening. And he says, you won't know when things are happening. When it's over, you can look back and understand it. And that's why he showed him the knot in the tefillin, because if you see somebody wearing tefillin, you see two straps hanging in the front. But you don't know where it comes from. And it's only if you can see the knot in the back that you understand the source. The knot is where everything comes from. La'aged is to tie together. Knot is where everything comes together. So you don't always see the source. You don't know what's happening when it's happening. Said the briskarov, Amuna means when I don't understand what's happening. It's nice if there'll always be a happy ending. It's nice if the good guy always wins and the bad guy gets his just desserts. But it doesn't always work that way. And it says in Perkei we don't understand the suffering of tzaddikim or the, the fact that the Rishayim have it good. There's certain things we don't know because we don't have all the details. We don't see the big picture. And it's only when all the pieces come together, and I don't mean in a lifetime. Rabbi Yisrael Salanta died anonymously in a small town thinking he had never accomplished anything. He wanted to start this Muslim movement and he thought it never happened. And after he died, then the seeds that he planted took root and flowered. But he didn't see it. And you don't know. I heard once from an Adam Gadol. Why is there a tshuva movement? He said, it was in Europe when all these kids were going off the derech and all the Yiddish mamalas and all the babas were sitting there and crying. You think all those tears went to waste? No. They stayed there until somebody down the line would be willing to come back and the Kaddish Baruch Hu moved heaven and earth so that that person would have an opportunity to come back from out of nowhere. You know? Somebody told me there were these two people in the Philippines. They were thinking of, con- of converting and they weren't going to convert Orthodox. And then they heard one of my shiurim and they decided to. You know, this is only one of the most amazing stories that I've been able to do over a lifetime. And really, we need our entire share just to talk about how actually impressive I am. But I know I review it on a constant basis. But, uh, yeah, you don't know. 
And you see when things happen in your life, living with Amuna means that I know God knows what he's doing, even if I don't. Or as that girl in Auschwitz wrote that unbelievable poem, I believe in the sun even when I don't see it shining. And I believe in God even when I don't see him. Or the Chassid in the Holocaust who said to God, you took my wife, you took my children, you took my parents, but you will never get me to stop loving you. I got complaints. There was a story, I don't remember which camp it was in, where they decided to put God on trial for the Holocaust. And they had the whole trial, and they came out, God was guilty. So I looked at each other and said, what do we do now? So the guy says, Mencha. Yeah. It's okay to understand there are things I don't understand. As long as I'm not just accepting it on blind face. If I sat down and looked at the evidence and I know that it's true and I know that it's correct, I know that everything makes sense. And then I have a terrible question. No, about 6,000 yards, the Abish to feel the wealth. Akash Baruch has been running the world. He knows what he's doing. It's going to come to a conclusion. I, I want to I finish up with just one amazing story. I know I'm starting to sound like Pesach Kron. I want to end with one great story, and then we'll review everything. And, anyway. I heard this story from the fellow himself. He, uh, you know, I usually tell a story. I hear a story, I tell it over. You know, Pesach Kron has to check it out with like 16 people. I called up the person and I came and I saw I hear a story, I tell it over. This one I happen to have actually heard it from the guy, so I know it's true. Yeah. This fellow had learned in Orsamech and he became a lawyer and he became a big belt stalker and he had investments and then every year his business grew his practice grew, and he gave more money. And then there was the crash, 2006, and uh, he lost a lot of money. And the part that bothered him was that now he couldn't give his stucker. So he decided he was going to go away with his wife to New Hampshire, Vermont, go hiking in the mountains. <coughs> he left his kids with, uh, with a neighbor, and he says, we were hiking in the mountains. And it was a chance for a philosophical discussion. We don't usually have philosophical discussions. And I said, you know, I'm so upset. Because when I was in Or Sameach, they said, that the Chazal says, when it comes to tzedakah, Hashem says, you can test me. If you give your tzedakah money, I guarantee you, you'll always have your panos and it'll always grow. And I always gave my tzedakah. I was meticulous. I kept records. I always gave the tzedakah. And now, my business went down. How can that be? The Chazal say, you can test me on this. So his wife said, well, there are things we don't understand, and there are things we don't get, and that. And he says, no, 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 no. It says about this, you can test me. I guarantee it. It's a guarantee. It's not a, well, maybe it's this, maybe that. And he says, my wife said to me, maybe you're not supposed to get it in cash. Maybe what you're supposed to get is, like they say in the game shows, you know, $25,000 in cash and prizes, you know. Maybe you're getting it in a different form. Now, he was a lawyer. And he said, 
For the record, let it be noted. Most people don't talk this way. He was a a lawyer. For the record, let it be noted. If you are telling me that instead of getting the money, I saved the life of one of my children, that I'm willing to take that instead. Okay. Scene change. The neighbor drove the kids to camp. Went inside to take care of some things. And then went to Home Depot. And as he was getting out of the van, saw that the baby was still in the van. It was in the summer. The baby was unconscious. That baby was two years old, whatever it was. And he was in a panic. And he grabs the baby and he runs into the Home Depot and he starts screaming, Help me, help me. And they announce, Does anyone here know CPR? Does anybody here have a doctor? Anyone have medical training? And two EMT people came running over. And uh, they started working on the kid and they resuscitated him. And they called the ambulance and they bring the kid to the ambulance. You know, they bring him to the hospital. He says, I'm a personal injury lawyer. I'm telling you that, you know, I may have my numbers wrong, but it was something like anybody who's lower than 12 on whatever the scale is, it's considered like, you know, brain damage forever. My kid was six. They said, we don't know if he's ever going to recover consciousness and we don't know if he'll ever be a normal kid again. And as he tells me this story, the little kid comes running into the room, Abba, Abba, and grabs something, you know, and runs out. He said, that's him. He had a complete recovery. The two people, the two EMTs, said to me, I'll tell you the truth, you look like a man of God. Each one said separately, I wasn't supposed to be in Home Depot. One guy was on a construction site, he was building something, and he dropped his hammer. He went down, he couldn't find it. It disappeared. He went to Home Depot to buy another hammer. The other guy, he says, I have a Jewish neighbor, an old lady. This is what you would call a yenta, you know. And she was always bothering me to fix her fence. So today I took off from work and I came down to Home Depot to buy the stuff. We should not have been there when they brought your child in. He didn't get any of these phone calls because he was up in the mountains. He didn't have reception. When he came down, he saw all the messages. And it suddenly occurred to him. He estimated the time. And he realized that when they found the baby in the van, it was the same time that he said, let it be noted for the record, if instead of getting it in cash, I would save the life of one of my children, then I'll take that instead. We have cautious. A lot of cautious. And there aren't always happy endings. There aren't always happy endings. It's nice when you tell stories with happy endings. There aren't always happy endings. You know? You hear the story where the plane crashed and the guy survived. And people say to me, what about the people who didn't survive? I always say, that's a different cheer. <laughs> well, this is that cheer. I can't guarantee you everything's going to work out. I can't tell you everything's going to go the way you want. A Kaddish Baruch who runs the world. And he's got a great track record. That's what he was trying to say. For about 6,000 years he'd been running the world and he knows what he's doing. We live with the Muna every day because we believe in the sun even when it's not shining. We understand that a Kaddish Baruch Hu is there with us no matter what happens. Life doesn't always go the way we want. There's no question that if we were in charge we would do it differently. 
But if I was God, you know what I would do? Just what he's doing now. He knows what he's doing better than me. That's called living with the moon. When a person understands this, and understands, as, as the Brisker Rev said, you understand, a moon begins when it doesn't make sense. It's nice when everything goes well, and the good people win, and the bad people lose, but it doesn't always go that way. Sometimes the bad people win, and the good people suffer. And all we can do, you understand, is remember, it's about 6,000 years, and God runs the world. And we have to believe, based on everything that we know, that he knows what he's doing. And Amir Hashem, bigger people than me have said, we're reaching the end of the story. At the end of the story, when the last piece of the puzzle goes in, we'll understand everything retroactively. Suddenly, everything will become clear. There's going to come a time when everything will be clear, and that day is coming pretty fast. Emir Hashem, all of us should be zaychet to see it in our days. Thank you.